Hey everybody, Justin here. The episode you're about to hear is the season finale of Holy Ghost Stories Season 2, and it is a very special episode because I've collaborated with someone very special to create it. Some of you may know that my wife Jennifer is an author. She writes as J.L. Gerhardt, and since the beginning of Holy Ghost Stories, she has been kind enough to serve as my editor, poring over my first draft of each script, asking questions, making suggestions, pointing out flaws. In other words, making every episode better than it would have been without her. This is a volunteer position. Her full-time work is writing. She's an extraordinary thinker and writer. Her books focus on seeing and knowing God. And she has just released her seventh book. I'm recording this in November 2021, and this book launched at the beginning of this month. It's called Look to Love a better way to read the Bible. Well, the first chapter of Look to Love brings you into the story of Eve in Genesis 2 and 3. And when I read the first draft of that chapter, I put the manuscript down and said to my wife, okay, when Holy Ghost Stories tells the story of Eve, I think you have to write it. Her perspective was just too good not to share with you. Plus, I'd been thinking that when it came time to tell Eve the mother of all living's story, it would be wonderful to do it from a distinctly female perspective. Hence, this collaboration. With that said, I'm so excited for you to hear this episode, still with my voice as usual, but with JL's words. It's joyous and tender and tragic and spellbinding, and it treats with great empathy a woman who's so often relegated to the realm of didactic two-dimensionality or comic punchlines. Eve is special to me. Jennifer and I named our daughter after her. Perhaps after this episode, you'll understand a bit of why. You can find Look to Love on Amazon. Just search Look to Love J.L. Gerhardt or click the link in the show notes. I'm telling you, if you love Holy Ghost Stories, you will love this book. It will forever change the way you approach scripture. And now, without further ado, here is The Giver and the Taker. How did it all begin? Laughter and tears, cuisine and art, love and community, man and woman. What was it like in the beginning? And why isn't it like that now? Some stories end with a wedding. This one starts that way. Well, with a birth and then a wedding. This is a story about love about a person who had everything she needed, affection, care, safety, peace, and decided to trade it all away for a mirage. If you ever find yourself longing for something better, something more, this is the story of what you're longing for and why sometimes it feels so far away. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Nobody remembers what it was like to be born. Those first mute, muddy memories, memories untethered to words, unspoken and eventually unspeakable, drown in an ocean of noisier, more particular, more useful recollections. 
Before long, life is too full of details. The cast list too long, the joys and pains stacked in tottering towers. Who can recall how it all began? Nobody remembers what it was like to be born. But maybe the woman does. Awakening fully grown, your body and mind in medias race almost, enables a certain consciousness, a sensory awareness most newborns do not enjoy. Which of the five senses comes first? Does Yahweh lean over and whisper, Good morning? Are those the first words she hears? Yahweh's voice shaking hair cells in the cochlea, electricity shooting to the brain, signals turned to sound. Is this her body's first exercise in living? Or does Yahweh wake her like a mother wakes her slow-to-wake child? Does he gently shake her? Does he lift her to her feet and hold her shoulders as she steadies herself on brand new legs? Is her father's touch her first sensation? The first sense that she is? Or maybe, maybe the woman's first memory is of something she sees. Something she'll spend her whole life trying to describe. The light of his face, she'll say to her children. It's like waking up beside a fire. Warm, beautiful, powerful, waiting for you. The woman is a late addition to the story. The other characters are already assembled, the plot well underway. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost have already been around for as long as anything has been around. He is, they are, Alpha. The man comes later, but first. God makes man from dust, breathes life into his new lungs, plants him a garden, and tells him to work it. All kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees pleasing to the eye and good for food. Apple trees, mango trees, banana, pomegranate, fig. Every day in the garden is sweet. The man prunes and harvests and eats. Juice drips down his chin. Fruit from seed to first bite is life. But life, as good as it is, is missing something. Yahweh says to himself, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, a benevolent opposing force. The man needs balance, God says to God. God agrees. So Yahweh removes the man's rib. He makes the man a little less to make him more. When the man comes to after surgery, he sees what his maker has made and loves it. He loves it so much he sings, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Ish, man, and Isha, taken out of man, woman. This is what we are, a pair, joined. Their official names, Adam and Eve, will come much later. What does the woman make of it all? Arriving in the middle of the story, created to meet a need, 
What does it feel like to have everyone staring at you so sure you're the right answer? A very good thing. Chronicle of an Average Day in Eden, perhaps. 1. Wake to the sound of water boiling. The man is making tea. He discovered Camellia sinensis on a walk, its perfume stopping him mid-sentence. He's played with it for days, crushed it under rocks, dried it, and now steeped it in hot water. He serves the woman in a steaming cup just as her eyes adjust to the dawn light. Flower petals float in the brown water. It tastes like morning. 2. There is no getting dressed, but the woman does comb her hands through her long, wavy hair, a first act of world-ordering and a day full of setting things right. She sets off with the man at first light, carries a basket she's made from the tall grasses growing beside the river. She eats a banana as she walks. The man tells her about the dream he had last night and she tries hard to listen without getting distracted by birds. 3. The woman and the man spend the day tending to the trees. They take a break when the sun is high in the sky and swim in the cool river. The man swims far. So far he becomes a tiny dot on the water's surface. The woman treads water close to the shore. She smiles at the capuchin monkeys stealing fruit from her basket. She laughs at the toucan who steals from the monkeys. Four. In the evening, when the breeze shakes the blossoms off the almond trees and the lions and antelope and three-toed sloths wake from midday naps and the seagulls go fishing, the man and the woman put down their baskets and head to the meeting place. They hear him coming before they see him, and when they see Yahweh, every time they're transformed. It's as if he rubs off on them, his glory, his joy, his peace. One day, thousands of years in the future, their descendant, Moses, will experience this same phenomena. After being with Yahweh, he'll glow. 5. Together, the three of them, the man, the woman, and Yahweh, take a walk. Yahweh listens as his children tell him about their day, about how far he swam, about the monkeys she saw. Yahweh loves how much they love this time. It's clear they feel free with him. The woman has made herself a crown of orange blossoms. Yahweh knew she'd love them the moment he made her. Dressed in his radiant light, a daughter wearing her dad's coat, she dances ahead like some kind of goddess, looking back to see if her father approves. He smiles. Very good. 6. Later, as the humans fall asleep, the man rolls over to face the woman. It's dark, but the stars and the moonlight trace her face and reflect in her eyes. He says, You don't know how lonely it was before you came. I looked everywhere for a friend. I thought the wolf was my best chance. But then Yahweh gave you to me. And when I saw you, he touches her cheek. You're perfect. 
If not all of this, then things just like this. Moments these two will describe to their wide-eyed children and grandchildren again and again. Some days, the man and the woman work in the center of the garden. It's possible that the woman does not look forward to these days, that they make her nervous, that that tree makes her nervous. Which is unfortunate because the other tree there in the center of the garden is probably her favorite tree. It towers over all the others, its thick limbs reaching in every direction, its wide leaves shadowing the garden floor. Surely, to harvest all the fruit, the most delicious fruit in all of Eden, she has to climb up into the tree, moving higher and higher, her arms swinging like an orangutan's. Sometimes she and the man might climb to the highest branches and peek out above the leaves, see all four rivers from this perch. She likes it here. Up in the branches, she can't see the other tree at all. On her first day as a human, the man told her the rules, rules he'd heard from Yahweh himself. The man said, you can eat from any tree in the whole garden, but not from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Maybe her eyes widened with too much interest, so he followed up prudently, you shouldn't even touch it. Her favorite tree is called the tree of life. It's a straightforward name, eat from it and live. The fruit itself is sweet and tangy and bold, just a bite and you feel enlivened. The other tree's name is confusing, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The woman doesn't know good and evil. She knows good. God says the garden is good. The sky and stars and sea and grass and rabbits and eagles and and her, God says she's good, very good. Evil, she doesn't know that word. But today, in the center of the garden, the man close by, perhaps harvesting fruit from their favorite tree, the woman will be introduced. She's putting down her basket or taking a breath before climbing or sorting through the harvested fruit looking for bruised flesh when she first hears the sound. It's a hissing sound, but it's not like the hissing of the cottonmouth snakes who live by the river or the green pythons who live in the kapok trees. This hissing sounds human. She turns toward the source, the forbidden tree. As the sounds assemble into words, her eyes scan the winding branches. This tree is wiry and sprawling, a mirror of the deep, crawling roots under the soil. The hairs on the back of her neck stand at attention. Finally, she sees him, it, there behind the ample leaves and ripe, dangling fruit. He's a serpent, but not a serpent, not exactly. For one, he's speaking, and though she's held snakes before and let them wrap around her wrist like living bracelets, no snake has ever said hello. This serpent is obviously different. The woman is curious, as she always is in this place full of wonders. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman responds, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. She has proof in her basket. Her eyes linger on the collected fruit from trees all over Eden. Mangoes, bananas, coconuts, apples, star fruit. So much goodness. She looks back at the serpent. He's waiting, perhaps turning his head to gaze at the fruit above. She continues, But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Maybe she says, This tree is different. It's the one thing God hasn't given us. This is the closest the woman has ever been to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Perhaps she looks at it like she never has before. Those sprawling branches don't seem so scary up close. They seem sturdy. The bark isn't as dark as she'd thought. Up close it looks smooth, soft even. As she looks, examines, wonders, the serpent who isn't a serpent says, You will not certainly die. Does the woman look down at her feet? Does she realize she's standing on the tree's exposed roots now? Has she drawn so close, trying to hear the serpent, trying to see the tree that the leaves brush against her shoulders? Does she think, I've touched it, and look, I'm not dead? The serpent plunges forward, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. There it is, that word again, evil. The woman knows good. She loves good. There is so much good here. Fruits of every color and size and kind. Bird songs like symphonies. Every sunset a masterpiece. Every star a diamond. The man is good, beautiful and kind and present. Yahweh has declared it. Everything here is good. This serpent doesn't seem good like everything else is good. He seems to know things she doesn't. He's clever, charming even. Is he evil? Is evil similar to good? Would she like it? Is Yahweh keeping something from her? What happens next could not be of greater consequence, but it's unlikely the woman knows how significant it is. At this very moment, the moment when she looks again at the fruit, when she sees that it's round and ripe and thinks it must be delicious. As she reaches her hand toward it, right then all of heaven is standing on tiptoe holding their breath. She doesn't know, how could she know, that poets and philosophers and storytellers will write about this moment one day, that children will draw pictures of it. All she knows is that she wants the fruit, and so far in her life, a charmed life of perfection and belonging, love and safety, She's had everything she's ever wanted. Shouldn't she have this too? She plucks the fruit from the branch. She takes a bite. Juice spreads across her lips. Silently, the whole world crashes down around her. The woman hands the fruit to the man 
Perhaps he heard her talking to the serpent and climbed down from the tree of life, wandering over just in time to see her already touching this tree's branches. The man takes the fruit from his not-dead wife's hand, evidence of God's withholding. He takes a bite because she took a bite. When one side of an arch falls, what can the other do? They're in this together now. Something happens when the man and the woman eat the fruit, but it's not immediate death. It feels more like, what is it? Like being uncovered, like the cool of the garden, but too cold, like the tart juice of a pomegranate, but too sour, like the thrill of jumping, but too scary, like falling. It feels, too, for the first time, like something might hurt them. The thought has never crossed their minds before, but now it consumes them. They reach for the leaves of the tree, wanting to cover themselves. Newborns shocked by the chill of the air outside the womb. They need a blanket. Fig leaves are the best they can do. When it's time to walk with Yahweh, the woman and the man hide. God arrives at his usual spot and calls out, Where are you? Why aren't you where you're supposed to be? The man calls back from his hiding place, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Is the man afraid of Yahweh? Does he know what he's afraid of? Yahweh finds the man and the woman, and like a father, talking to toddlers with chocolate smeared across their faces, he says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? He knows, but he asks. The man says, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. The woman must flinch. This is the first time... Her husband has blamed her, found some fault in her, pointed to her in disgust or disapproval. It will happen again a thousand times. She will never get used to the sting of it. The woman's father looks at her, his daughter, the one who danced in light and wore orange blossoms in her chestnut hair. The light on her skin has faded, her joy and peace lost. She tries to hold the fig leaves in place as she avoids looking in his eyes. Yahweh asks, is he crying? What is this you have done? comes next is punishment and curses, consequences of wrongdoing, of mistrust, of wanting more when everything good was already theirs. It's what one might expect to happen when humans break God's rules. The man and the woman bear up under the weight of their newly revealed destiny, pain, toil, sweat, and, as promised, death. 
The man, Adam, grabs onto a bright spot in the woman's curse. He hears, with painful labor, you will give birth to children. And he names her Eve, because it's not all bad. You'll be the mother of all living. The worst part of all is leaving the garden. The man and the woman cannot eat both the fruit of life and the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. That would not be good. So Yahweh evicts them and puts a guard at the door. Eden is the only home the woman and the man have ever known. When they go, they will never come back. That's the expected part. Consequences. A tragic ending. There is an unexpected part, too, though. Before God makes Adam and Eve go, he gives them something. Something he made out of something he loved. Yahweh calls out for a bull, the woman standing by, still wearing the leaves, itchy and too thin. He calls the animal by the name the man gave it, Par. When the bull arrives, obedient and flawless, a glowing golden red like fall leaves, Yahweh slaughters it, blood spilling onto the perfect green carpet of Eden. It is the first time God takes a life, the first death anyone has ever seen. Hadn't he promised that the fruit would lead to death? In front of the woman and man, Yahweh gets to work skinning the animal. It's possible he does this in the manner of creation, speaking, separation, his words pulling apart the hide and muscle and fat. It's also possible he wields a knife in a physical, material hand, working like the man and woman will soon have to work, exerting themselves to the point of sweat. It is not easy to butcher a 2,000-pound bull. They'll need to know how to do this next part as well, and so maybe rather than an instantaneous conjuring of hide garments, Yahweh teaches them. Once he's separated skin from flesh, he soaks the hide in water and ash, perhaps ash from the pyre upon which he's burned the bull. Later, he'll soak the hide in lime. The soaking takes days. Next, he'll remove the bull's hair with the blunt side of a knife, back to soaking, this time in vinegar. Yahweh then makes a tanning solution from tree bark and water. Is it one last gift from the tree of life? He cooks the solution over a fire pit, smoke rising into the star-strewn sky. When it's ready, he strains the bark and soaks the hide again, this time for a month or so. Anything less and the leather will rot. When it's time for drying, Yahweh removes the skin and lashes it to a square wooden frame, stretched north to south, east to west, across the timber. The hide is now scourged, a stick worked violently across the surface, softening the leather, making it pliable. Once it's dry, Yahweh cuts the leather into pieces, sewing durable garments into just the right shapes. After weeks of work, just before he sends them away, God covers his children in the clothing he has made, clothing suitable 
for a more dangerous world. He wraps them in the par and in his love. Later, the Hebrews will use that same word par as a root in their word kapara, forgiveness. She's been in labor for hours when Adam finally yells, surely he yells, I can see the head. Pain radiates from Eve's pelvis up her back, down her legs. For a while, the pain came in waves, breaks between swells every few minutes, opportunities for catching her breath. Now she inhales like a drowning woman, desperate not to die. Yahweh promised that the pain would be very severe. He did not lie. Lately, she's begun to realize he never does. Instinctually, Eve begins to push. Adam puts his hands on her knees, meeting her force with his, steadying her, giving her something to push against. Eve screams like a woman on fire. Soon, her screams are replaced by another's. Adam lifts his wailing son to his mother's breast. Eve looks at Adam and beams, sweat on her brow, blood on his hands, blood on her thighs, crimson and mucus coating this new crying human. She says, let's name him Cain, because with Yahweh's help, I have brought forth a man. The baby like all naked newborn babies, looks scared and cold, uncovered. Perhaps Eve reaches for her leather garment, the very thing her father gave her when she first felt naked and afraid. Perhaps she wraps Cain in it and holds him close, fruit of her womb. One more gift given freely by Yahweh the God who never withholds. Hey, Justin, one more time, I hope you were blessed by this story. If you were, the only way Holy Ghost Stories continues to exist is if we continue growing the community of partners over on Patreon. It's an online platform that allows people like you to support creators you believe in. And there's all kinds of great Holy Ghost Stories stuff waiting for you there. There are three levels of support, anecdotalist, storyteller, and raconteur. 
All three tiers get to vote on which stories I tell. They get a PDF of the full script of every episode when it drops, along with bonus episodes. There's Vashti and JL already. I'm working on Hezekiah right now. And then if you level up as a storyteller, you'll also receive episode-specific, application-oriented discussion guides you can use with your small group or for your own reflection. Storytellers also get remixed scenes, where I take a scene from an episode of Holy Ghost Stories and change it up by scoring it with modern music. These are super fun and a great way to bring these men and women into our world. If you want to be super generous and make sure Holy Ghost Stories continues on for many seasons to come, you can come on as a raconteur. You get all of that other stuff, plus a director's chat podcast where a few times each season, my wife and I sit down and discuss a particular episode, talking about Easter eggs you may have missed, themes in the story, fascinating stuff I discovered in my research, storytelling decisions I made, stuff that got edited out. If you like Holy Ghost Stories and if you like the Bible, then I think you will really like the director's chat. Two, in the off-season this year, I will be launching the Holy Ghost Stories merch shop, and as a raconteur, you will get one free item of your choosing every year. Oh, and eventually, I want to do some live shows. Whenever that happens, raconteurs come free. Here's the deal. If we want good Christian art, if we want the stories of scripture told creatively, it takes people willing to make good stuff and people willing to finance good stuff. I quit my job to create Holy Ghost Stories because I believe deep in my bones that our stories deserve to be told in compelling ways. If you do too, come alongside me and let's do this together. Now, I set a crazy goal a few weeks ago to get to 200 patrons by the end of this season. Honestly, I don't know that we're going to get there. We might, it's up to you, but I'll tell you this, God has been so faithful through you guys. The money I invested in bringing Kendall Ramsour on to create an original score for episode eight, almost every penny of that has been covered by one-off gifts that you incredible people have made through the Venmo or PayPal links at holyghoststories.org. I am so grateful. It's that kind of support that's going to enable me to continue on into season three. And I'm so proud of what you and Kendall and I created together. I'm praying that it's not the last time. Oh, and if you become a patron before November 29th, I will send you a patron saint of storytelling sticker or t-shirt for free. You can wear it proudly knowing that you are indeed a patron saint of storytelling. Thanks to all of you who've already come on as patrons, and here is a shout out to the raconteurs. Boo, Helen, Jared, and Kaylin, Elizabeth, Scott, and Susan, Rick, Mindy, Maddie, April, Eric, John, Sarah, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Jamie, Stephen, Bill, and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie M. I'm so grateful for you. I hope you loved season two. Season three begins at the end of January. Between now and then, I will be planning, researching, storyboarding, updating you on Instagram, and dropping some fun stuff to patrons, including a poll to help me decide which stories to include next season. Patreon.com slash Holy Ghost Stories, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Holy Ghost Stories. The link's in the show notes. Thanks so much. Till next time.